1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. I just spoke with Paul Christensen about his new book, Japan, Alcoholism and Masculinity, Suffering Sobriety in Tokyo. This came out in 2015 with Lexington Books. In this book, Paul uses a very local case... Hi, I'm Carla Appy, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. I just spoke with Paul Christensen about his new book, Japan, Alcoholism, and Masculinity, Suffering Sobriety in Tokyo. This came out in 2015 with Lexington Books. In this book, Paul uses a very local case study to open out into much broader consequences. So the local case study is an ethnography of Japanese men who are struggling with sobriety, who are struggling with an identification as alcoholics in the context primarily of two major treatment programs, the only major treatment programs available to them in modern Tokyo, and these are Alcoholics Anonymous and Dan And the book uses this very local case study to open out into questions about how we understand the relationship between the individual and the collective, how we understand the social production of ideas of normalcy and abnormalcy, how we understand the ways that local social historical context can shape particular ideas of addiction, particular ways of dealing with and treating addiction, and how all of these relationships and these contexts can go on to constrain and provide opportunities for the development of a self, of an identity, when you are, for example, an individual who is, um, in this case that Paul describes, struggling with how to create a sense of self, a new self, a new identity, in a social context where um, the assumptions behind the treatment program that you are working in to make yourself, to make your new self, don't match up with the society and the culture that you live in necessarily. So it's a really interesting local case, again, that has, I think, much broader consequences. And it's of interest not only to um, anthropologists, to readers and listeners interested in anthropology in Japan, but also to readers and listeners interested in the history of medicine, of health, of conceptions of disease, of addiction, Um, and of the the ways that societies, language, social bodies, create individuals. So it was a real pleasure to talk with Paul about this. The book is really, really interesting, and I'm really grateful to you, as always, for listening and for supporting us in that way. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here to talk with Paul Christensen about his new book, Japan Alcoholism, and Masculinity. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Paul, and thanks very much for making time to be with me today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's very exciting to talk about my book. Well, for me too.
1: So as is traditional for the channel, um, let's start by saying a little bit about how you came to the field. What brought you to work in Japan and in a kind of ethno- or ethnographic approach to Japan specifically?
0: Well, uh, coming to Japan was initially mostly teenage rebellion. I <laughs> I um I took Japanese in high school because my parents didn't want me to. They thought it would be too difficult or too time-consuming. Um, and when I went to Japan for the first time when I was 17, uh, I and all the teachers I was with went out and had a beer at the end, and we didn't get our IDs checked and we were allowed to do this, and so it felt very rebellious for a group of American teenagers. And that was kind of... Whether I fully recognized it or not, that was the first moment I sort of paid attention to alcohol and drinking in Japan and how it's organized, how it's structured, some of the rules around it. Um, So yeah, that was how I first got to it. Um, And then many years later with grad school, um, I had maintained my interest in Japan and I was trying to sort of find a topic and I I wanted to do something with alcohol and drinking, I, I think. Psychoactive substances are just fascinating, particularly ethnographically fascinating um, and that 's what it, the project was actually originally supposed to be was to look at drinking and to look at drinking culture and I was going to have these ideas of going and working in a bar and observing people as they came and you know drank alcohol and got drunk and all those sorts of stuff and I got to Japan and realized that was had sort of been done already and probably wasn't going to work out quite the way I envisioned it. Um, But recovery kind of presented itself and and opened itself up. And there were these opportunities that I, you know, I think like a lot of anthropologists kind of fell into. Um, But then they started to grow and mature and and, um, some really interesting things started to come out of them. So that was the, the shift from initially wanting to look at how and why people are drinking to considering how and why people aren't drinking.
1: So why Tokyo? The the book focuses on Tokyo as a space for your study. What brought you there specifically and what kept you there um, for the purpose of the
0: study? Well, I do kind of love Tokyo to begin with. So it was, um, there was some, I guess, personal motivation as a place I I enjoy being and wanted to go back to. Um, But it also just has, it's where things are certainly concentrated in Japan. There are a lot of, of, bars. There are a lot of people drinking and being drunk. And there are also a lot of um, the groups that I worked with, These the alcohol support groups there. And it certainly is the largest concentration of meetings, of members, um, more just sort of the way the demographics of Japan work, and that there's also the most people there than anything else. But <laughs> it was something I certainly thought about, because there are some I think if I had done a book on alcoholism in, in, say, rural Japan or a smaller city in Japan, it would have been very different. Um, so Tokyo does certainly feature kind of prominently in the book, and that was a deliberate choice. I think it it is structured in a specific way in Tokyo. But part of my reason for going there was also just I, I find it to be a fascinating place, and I really thought doing field work there would be would be wonderful. Um, Certainly challenging, but also wonderful.
1: Great. And we'll talk about the nature of some of these recovery groups um, that you briefly mentioned later on in our conversation. Um, There's a really interesting and very detailed accounting of your experience with those groups and also the consequences of not only your, but um, individual members' experience of the groups for the larger argument of the book. So you've already mentioned graduate school, and the book um, started out as a dissertation project. Is that right?
0: Yes, correct. Okay, yes.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the transition from dissertation to book. Were there any major transformations either in the way you were conceptualizing the project, conceptualizing perhaps what you were arguing here, and or the way you were thinking about the architecture of the written project as a book?
0: Yeah, it was I mean, I had this standard sort of change in that the there's no longer the the stereotypical dissertation literature review in the book that was chopped up and sort of moved into other chapters and made, you know, mostly to sort of make the the book flow a bit better. Um, The biggest change that was certainly a change kind of in my own thinking about these topics and something I'm still trying to wrestle with and make sense of a bit more, but trying to move, consider how alcoholism is part of a larger conversation, larger set of discussions and disagreements around addiction generally, and how can this very specific group in Japan, in a group of people that's, you know, not more than, certainly not more than 10,000, perhaps not even more than 5,000 people, contribute to that conversation about what do we know about addiction, what are some of our taken-for-granted assumptions about what it means to be an addict, how does that differ based on where you find yourself in the world or, you know, your religious background, all these various things that contribute to, you know, what it means to be an addict and addicted and maybe an addict who's trying to negotiate recovery. So that was far and away the biggest change between the dissertation and the book. And, you know, a change that's certainly motivated by trying to make this something that's more relevant, more, you know, has a, a brighter appeal and and interest to a larger number of readers um but also just my own thinking about the topic and trying to trying to place alcoholism i think within this this larger context
1: and as somebody um speaking as somebody personally who teaches the history of drugs right and and the relationship between the history of drugs and ideas of what um counts as normal in different contexts. I really appreciated that part of the book, or that aspect, rather, of the book, because it's in a lot of different parts, right, where you're really um, being thoughtful about this particular case study in terms of larger issues of how we understand um, not just addiction, but also ideas of normal and normalcy and also the relationship between the individual and a collective um, uh, or different kinds of collectives. And so there's a lot of broader themes um, that I think the reader will take away from this book, yeah. you know, are located in this case study, but aren't necessarily purely local to them.
0: And, no, I mean, normal was one of the fat and it, normal and ideas about normalcy are certainly also in the dissertation, but I, I, still trying to sort of wrestle with those in the book, and even moving forward, you know, continuing to think about how does addiction, you know, in Japan as well as elsewhere, I think that... It's a fascinating aspect, and I think it's an aspect that's been neglected a bit. So I'm certainly glad that that comes through a bit, and I think it's something that needs to be... We need more people considering what it means to be, yeah, normal, and how does this vary, and what are the consequences behind it?
1: Absolutely. So getting right um, right into the book itself, let's talk about some of the ways that the book is about a specific kind of person, right? So this is not just about... Um, what it is to be normal, but specifically, this is about what it is in Japan, in Tokyo in particular, to be a normal man. So it's a story not just about Japanese alcoholics, but it focuses in particular on Japanese alcoholic men and on masculinity. So perhaps this is um, a good place, as good a place as any to start. Can you talk about that? Why focus... And I ask you to talk about this, not because it's not clear in the book, right, but to open this up for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. Why focus on men and what's important for you about the fact that this is a book about men and masculinity?
0: I mean, in a lot of ways that also, it kind of grows out of my original shift from, you know, first wanting to look at drinking in Japan to then looking at not drinking in recovery that, um... So much of what you re- read and hear about Japan talks about how you know to be a man is to 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 drink and to drink with other men. And while this is you know an idea that's been around for quite a long time and is in some ways somewhat stereotypical, and is certainly changing a bit in the contemporary, um, the fastest growing group of of people who are consuming in greater and greater levels are young women in Japan. Um, that idea is still quite strong. That Men drink, and men drink with other men um, and so, as I shifted my focus and started to look more and more at at recovery and not drinking, um, it, that question really stuck with me. so what does it mean then when when you're a Japanese male you're an adult um, you're you know trying to maintain a job and a career, and you know perhaps a family and all these other sorts of things. Um, what happens when you take alcohol out of that picture when either because you now identify yourself as an alcoholic and you feel you can't do this or you're part of an organization that now labels this as um, the worst type of of failure and lapse and something that will eventually lead inevitably to your death. Um, What do you do with that? So that was really where, you know, I wanted to focus more on Uh, the men and masculinity and how are they trying to negotiate this process. Um, And there certainly are, you know, women do feature in the book uh, a bit as well. And I think their experiences are in many ways a bit different, at least some of the women who, who attend some of the sobriety group meetings that I was in. But, you know, for a lot of the men, a lot of the conversation was structured around how difficult it was to be a man in Japan without alcohol, that how all the things they had to be mindful of, how much that could impact their job, um, men men who just stop showing up at work because the pressure has gotten too great for them to go out and have a drink with their coworkers, and they don't know how to tell others that they're sober and they're trying to stay sober, so they just stop going to work, and and moments like that really struck me as, you know, in terms of a conversation about masculinity, what it means to be a man in Japan, alcohol really is still a huge part of that, and when it's removed, um, there really isn't a lot left, and a lot of these men really struggled tremendously with that.
1: Now, in this particular context that you're looking at in Japan and in Tokyo in particular, alcoholism... The experiences thereof, conceptions thereof, and treatment thereof looks different from what uh, listeners who are based in the U.S., for example, might be familiar with. Now, some of the recovery groups—you I mean, focus on two recovery groups in particular, and one of them—and um, and I say some of because this has different manifestations, right? And we'll talk about that right. later. Local meetings, central meetings, but one of them is Alcoholics Anonymous. And you talk about the particular local caste that Alcoholics Anonymous has in Japan. And there's another recovery group as well that is local to this particular context. And that's Danshukai.
0: Right.
1: So, Let's start, because these two groups occupy such an important place in this study, right? Let's start by laying that foundation for listeners that we can then build on later. So Alcoholics Anonymous, um, can you talk about, for listeners who are not perhaps familiar with the way this looks in Japan, what's notable, um, in your opinion, about how Alcoholics Anonymous functions and exists in Japan that might be distinctive to that particular context?
0: (coughs) Right. Um, well, what's interesting is that alcoholics. I guess if we want to sort of maybe consider the the broader history, that AA starts in the United States in 1935, and it it, it develops slowly at first, but has sort of this explosion kind of in the 1950s or so, and and now it really is this this massive force in contemporary American life, even often in ways that I think people don't fully appreciate a lot of the AA slogans that we just use without knowing they originally come from AA, like, you know, one day at a time is is AA language. <laughs> um, and I think we're so, we are so familiar with AA, even when we don't recognize it in the U.S., and we often don't pause and consider what that familiarity kind of, what is carried with it and how that how that shapes, how that influences, how that structures, how a lot of Americans, at least, regard alcoholics. That alcoholics are not degenerates. They're not, you know, people you can totally write off. They are still, you know, members of our community and capable. And and um, you know, they are doing this this noble thing by working on their 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 struggles and attending meetings. And it's it, it has a very different feel and character than it still has in Japan, where. If we sort of shift the history then over to Japan, um, the, the two groups, Donjukai and AA, are interesting in that they are distinct groups. They are very different. They share a little bit of membership, but not too much. It's you, you're usually members of one group or the other, but they're also in many ways very similar. That Donjukai is a, based on AA, and prior to official. American AA getting to Japan in the 1970s, Don Shukai felt itself to be Japanese AA. And they changed a few things. The early leadership of Don Shukai identified some, they called them fatal flaws in American AA that it relied on donations for financial stability. And um, there was too much emphasis on being anonymous. Uh, They didn't include family members in meetings. Um, So they took those things out and but otherwise Don Shukai still relies on a lot of the same ideology that AA relies upon in Japan and the United States that you have to surrender yourself to a higher power to something beyond yourself Um, you have to accept that you have this lifelong incurable illness that, that alcoholism is a lifelong incurable disease and you will always be in recovery you will never be a recovered addict And you have to then constantly work on this. You have to attend meetings, you know, regularly for forever, essentially. Um, And this is always going to be something that you carry around. And so what's interesting then is that not that much has changed for the organization in moving it to a different cultural context, that it's still relies on a lot of the same ideological apparatus that it has in the US. Confession, surrender, surrender to something beyond yourself. And if you do this and you do this to the required degree, you will be transformed. You will somehow be fundamentally remade into a new person and a person who's happy, who's, who's happy without alcohol and drinking. And so that's often been the struggle for a lot of members that they're, they're sort of intellectually comfortable and capable with these ideas, but they don't necessarily have some of the more, some of the other connections. That if, if confession isn't a meaningful practice to you, particularly, say, conves- confession to God, even if it's God as you understand Him, which is sort of the AA's language for, for framing this. Um, then you can confess all you want, but it maybe won't have the, the effect that AA is, is telling a lot of Japanese members it will it will have for them.
1: That's right. And one of the wonderful things I think the book does is really highlights a critique of, or a question of, the portability of this notion of um, addiction and alcoholism and the structure built around it um, by a predominantly... Um, that, you know, listeners or readers might take for granted as being, you know, global, right? Which is right, it yes. Is, but you're really showing that in different local contexts, this set of notions comes with a whole bunch of um, different kind, or this whole set of notions we, that we assume to be portable comes with a whole set of baggage that's very local to the U.S. context. And when you move that to another context, um, it's not necessarily going to be a seamless fit. So
0: Exactly, you know, yeah, yeah.
1: So in um, the kind of early chapters, you talk about this whole set of historical and contextual um, uh, baggage or this frame that AA fits into. And um, the early chapters discuss, for example, the history of notions of alcoholism, the history of temperance movements. Um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and you show how that, that temperance movements actually worked out very differently in Japan, and that's one of the things to keep in mind right. that yeah. you know that shapes local experience of a of a in Japan. But also the history of alcohol itself and its connections to spirituality is very different in Japan. And in the second chapter, um, you talk about this, right? The importance of alcohol um, and its connection to religious ritual historically in japan and the ways that that has kind of reverberated down and shaped contemporary attitudes so can you talk a little bit about that shinto um sort of religion and spirituality and the connections between that and alcohol in japan what's important about those connections for you in terms of what happens now and what happens later
0: right well i mean it's really fascinating that that I I always also kind of consider this in the context of Christianity, that we also do have alcohol at, you know, some of the centers of of Christian rites and and rituals, right? You know, the drinking of wine. But it certainly takes on a very different meaning than we see in Japan, that sake in particular, right? This was how you kind of, you communed with the gods. And drunkenness was often seen as a way to, to be closer to, the supernatural and the spiritual, so it was it, it it has this sense of being something profound sounds almost a little too strong of a word, but along those lines, right that this was something that was to be celebrated and enjoyed and and brought you to a at least temporarily brought you to a a better place. Um, I think in the contemporary we 've also seen you know the the abuse of that idea perhaps by. You know, advertisers in Japan, and, and relying upon some of those those very productive, those very happy, those very indulgent connections in Japan to then you know use that to sell alcohol, or use that to to continue to cement alcohol's place in Japan as something that's that's requisite for socialization, as something that you know you need in order to to make something fun and enjoyable that if you want to go out and have a good time, alcohol needs to be a part of that. But you see this this really interesting connection with religion, you know, Shintoism in particular. Um, particularly with sake as well, you get, you know, conversations about sake being made from rice and other metaphors of Japan. Rice is, you know, the staple food of the nation. So again, it really kind of cements at least one particular type of alcohol as deeply significant, but also deeply enjoyable and, and something that should be revered, but also something that, you know, this is how you have fun. And that idea I think is carried forward in some very powerful ways that you see and uh, this still, even after all my years of going back to Japan and you know spending large amounts of time there, I'm still always struck initially by how how tolerant and how out in the open drunkenness is that, you know, walking around any major city or even small towns, you see people who are, you know, very visibly intoxicated. And it, it, I guess as sort of, you know, an American who grew up in the United States, I I have to kind of wrestle with my, I don't know, lingering Puritan morals or something about this. And what's (laughs) going on here? Why, why do they tolerate this? And let's quickly go away. And, you know, maybe I participate a bit as well, but it's, it's very It still does sort of strike me when i 'm there how how prominent drunkenness is and how it's it's something that's you know oftentimes celebrated. There are certainly you know restaurant owners or, or taxi drivers or people like that who get frustrated when they have to deal with the consequences of overconsumption um, but drinking and drunkenness are very easily visible in Japan and I think in part because of this, these historical connections that they can make um, and things that have just been relied upon by, for a very long time by a large number of people in Japan.
1: And this chapter, Chapter 2, um, not only opens up this landscape of... Um, drinking and drunkenness as something that's not just you know celebrated but also tolerated you talk about the ubiquity of vending machines yes. um, right, that sell alcohol <laughs> yeah. and the sort of televised drunkenness and the you know, lots of different ways in the media and also in the practice of everyday life and the technologies of everyday life um, that alcohol is is coded as leisurely and fun and is very very widely available and the
0: challenge chocolate- we, we should note that the, the vending machines are somewhat on the decline at least in in Tokyo you have to work a bit harder today to find them than at least you than you had to in 1995 whenever the first about then was the first time i went to japan but they are still there you have to dig a little bit more but yes there
1: so this as this chapter shows there are some really important consequences to this ubiquitous coding of alcohol as fun and leisurely for Japan's alcoholics and for men in particular. And the chapter really takes us into the ways um, that this can limit their employment options, this can limit their friendships, their relationships with family members, and also can shift their notions and limit the notions of selfhood and of identity. And we're going to see some of that playing out in the rest of the book as well. And specifically insofar as all of these are related to ideas and norms of gender and of masculinity, Specifically,
0: yes, yeah.
1: now, as we move through, um, you take us into um, sort of some lots more detail about these two programs that we briefly talked about a few minutes ago and that you introduced at the beginning of the book, and this is AA and Danshukai. Now, in both of these cases, you talk about the importance um, to these recovery programs of um, something that you mentioned just a bit earlier, which is this notion of uh, spirituality, right? Either in terms of God as, um, you know, as you conceptualize him or as he's meaningful to you or it is meaningful uh, to you, and yes. more broadly in terms of a notion of spiritual awakening um, that is associated with ideas of healing for these men that you're studying. So let's talk about that a little bit. For you, like, what are some of the most important consequences or elements of this coding of recovery and healing in terms of a particular model of spirituality and a, a particular trope of awakening and spiritual awakening for these men?
0: Well, what I think is most fascinating is that it's that you have these very specific you know like you were saying these very specific tropes of spirituality most of them are very very much if not directly influenced by christianity but then this is also largely the only option that a lot of alcoholics have in japan that, that if this doesn't move you if this isn't something that you can derive uh meaning from you you don't really have anywhere else to go and and that is something that has really it stuck with me, you know, ever since I started started with this project, and something that I, I still sort of continue to, to to wrestle with. I think this really is kind of the unaddressed issue here. That if if AA or Don chikai don't work, one, the way that the groups frame their ideology, that's your fault. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't work the steps or work the program hard enough. You didn't, you know. Confess as much as you should have, or you didn't fully surrender yourself over. Um, but then, at the same time, there's no real acknowledgement that maybe this, maybe this isn't a meaningful practice for everyone. Maybe, maybe there are a lot of people who don't don't find really anything in doing these things, and so you get a lot of alcoholics and a lot of people at meetings who really are trying to to make this work for themselves, they're working the steps, they're working the program, they go to meetings, you know, every night of the week sometimes, um, but they're kind of just muscling through it and, and and suffering through it. That's why I wanted to put suffering somewhere in the title. And they're not finding that transformation that you were talking about, that part of the promise, and I think part of the appeal of both AA and Don Shukai is that if you do this and if you do this to the requisite degree you will become a new person you will be fundamentally transformed you will become someone who is happy without alcohol and there are a few individuals in japan who who can speak to this and who have had this there's you know one of the people i mentioned a little bit in detail in the book is this man toru who who can speak very eloquently about this moment of transformation. And he has this very specific incident that happened to him. You know, he was reading the book, the big book from AA one night and the room lit up and he felt this great sense of calm and release. And ever since then, he's been sober and he's been happy and he works really tirelessly to try to help others have a moment like this. But he's also very much the exception, not the norm. Um, and he will go and he'll lecture and he'll talk to, you know, groups of people who are struggling, who are trying to stay sober, um, and he'll often be the only one who can speak about things this way. So I think that the narrowness around this is what really, um, I think, becomes problematic in Japan, that it is recovery is framed in a very specific way along the lines of spirituality, and there is really no room to, to deviate from that or to try to chart a different path towards recovery or even really to question um, what it means to be in recovery and what, what a successful recovery looks like, that it looks like what A.A. and Don Shukai say it looks like. And if you can't make your experiences fit with that, then, then that's, that's a real issue.
1: And there's another important way that this whole um, system is constrained that you also talk about in this part of the book, and this is really important, um, and I want to mention this in part so that listeners and potential readers who are interested in history of medicine and biomedicine um, know that this is there. So you talk about the importance of the implication of addiction and treatment methodology, and, and really in both of these programs, within a frame of biomedical authority in this, um, in this context. Um, so can you talk about this a little bit? Um, what is the importance of Japanese physicians as gatekeepers to recovery programs? And, and can you talk about the ways that this biomedical context is important for not just how these men um, learn about and get involved in these recovery programs, but for maybe shaping what happens after?
0: Right. Well, I mean, that was really... Something that really struck me when i when I first started doing this work is that um, aA likes to to sort of to shape itself to present itself as someone who an organization that that kind of usurped the authority of physicians that they gave power back to the alcoholics that the alcoholics are the ones who they have these experiences they know what 's happening um, and we should we should give, give them a greater say in what's going on. And I think that's, that's a good idea and a good approach. Um, but what I found really interesting and you know, potentially somewhat of an issue in Japan is that nearly everyone comes to a or Don Shukai through hospitalization. They're introduced to either one of those organizations by their attending physician. They're often funneled into the organization the physician thinks is best for them depending on who they are. So if you're still married, uh, and you're particularly if you're a male and you're still married, they're going to send you or direct you more towards Shukai because they allow for family member participation. And then, you know, a lot of physicians will say that's the more appropriate place for you. And if you're not married or if you're a woman, they will direct you more towards AA because they have deemed that to be a bit more appropriate for, for those individuals. So they, you really have the, the physicians in Japan kind of dictating the terms of the conversation. They're the ones who are introducing patients to these programs, patients who are coming to their programs in hospital, um, who are often their patients for up to three months in these these sort of immediate recovery detox programs, and then they're introduced to sometimes both organizations, sometimes only one of them in hospital, and when they get closer and closer to being discharged are increasingly sort of pushed into one group or the other. So this isn't something that the individual is coming to on their own or something that they're maybe coming to through their friends or their family or you know, out of a sense of, of kind of abject frustration at, at what drinking is doing to their life. But they're, they're being, in many ways... Funneled and directed into it by their doctors. Um, at the same time, that these are supposed to be groups that kind of um, work to to move around that that authority based relationship, right? That 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 power imbalance, and try to empower the individual to take some control over their life through the groups. You know, ideological apparatus and the fellowship of other members, and you know, coming to mem- meetings, seeing that there are others who are having the same struggles that you're having. So it's it it, it strikes me in some ways as being structurally um, a bit problematic in Japan how things are organized. That this is you know, both of these organizations set themselves up as ways around this structure of authority, and instead, what we find in Japan is that. That structure of authority, doctor to patient, is what's filling the, the member ranks. And nearly everyone that I met and I, I worked with at meetings has come to that seat in the meeting through this arrangement. They were hospitalized and then directed into this meeting by their doctor.
1: And there's also this larger context, and we may have mentioned this before, but just to highlight that in this particular moment in the discussion, um, AA has a very particular disease model of alcoholism, right? right? So, like, even in the very notion of like what alcoholism is, um, it's coded in, in biomedical terms, even if it's um, loose biomedical terms as a disease, and that's a very specific way of constructing alcoholism as an experience and as an object.
0: But also as a disease that is incurable that's and. Right. And then again gets into um, quite a lot of issues in Japan and quite a lot of um, misunderstanding or disagreement, uh, particularly between members and the general public that um, there was one member who you know would nearly every week she would talk about how that was an issue for her because people would invite her from her work to go drinking, and she would say no you know i 'm an alcoholic now i 'm in recovery, and they would say, "Well, but you went to the hospital and you got released." So that means you're better, right? Mm-hmm. When you get discharged from the hospital, you you're recovered. so why can't you do this? And um, she really didn't feel she had had the vocabulary, had the language um, to, to make them understand her situation, at least you know her situation through the lens of AA so yeah, all sorts of issues start to emerge out of this, and I think it again gets back to the issue of trying to move conceptual categories and organizational framework around the world and and dropping it into different cultural contexts without any consideration for that context.
1: And even in the context of what we've been talking about as a meeting, there are variations in how that looks and what that experience is. And you take us into that in this middle part of the book. So Chapter 4 really looks in detail at your experiences in three different kinds of meeting groups that you worked with between April 2007 and August 2008. So Mondays, um, you describe beginner AA meetings in a hospital on Tokyo's western border. Wednesdays were devoted to a central group AA meeting. And Fridays um, were devoted to Ohashi Danchukai meetings. So right. We could spend easily right, a couple hours uh, talking about the intricacies of these different meetings, and there's a My lot best, of right, weekly
0: schedule. Yes,
1: right, right, and there's a lot of detail in the book, so I'll just mark that for listeners who want to know more um, in detail about the different sorts of social and individual practices and structures. Um, that were local to these different kinds of meetings and the significance of those differences and of the commonalities among them. But I'll just maybe ask you um, a little bit at this point to open up um, one or two or you know however many, um, but, but maybe one or two is good for time <laughs> that we have, of the moments for you in your ethnography that were perhaps the most striking. Um, so another way of asking this is, was there any... Moment um, in the course of your attendance and participation in these meetings that um, really importantly shaped how you were thinking about the project or or struck you or moved you, especially um, in any particular way?
0: One was actually at that the beginner's meeting that you mentioned my, what I did on Monday evenings while I was in Japan. Um, and I think it was partly sort of due to the nature of that meeting that this was a meeting where uh, long-term AA members came into a hospital um, and they spoke mostly to patients. They would deliver you know almost sort of hour-long lectures on, AA, and they would talk in great detail about the twelve steps they would usually do you know chunks of three steps each and then cycle through this over and over again do, <clears throat> excuse me to a room full of of patients, and the patients were often quite sort of passive and would listen to this and and take it all in and then the last bit of the meeting would be a chance for the the patients to say something and they often would say very little, you know, thank you for coming, or, you know, I will try my best to to not drink anymore, you know, things of that nature. Um, but there was one day in particular, and there was one patient there, and he was an older man, probably in his, his 60s or so, um, and right as the lecture was finishing, he raised his hand and said, you know, I'm sorry, can I ask a question? And that in itself was unusual. That was the only time I remember that happening while I attended this meeting. And and the AA volunteers said, oh, yes, of course, please, you know, we welcome questions. Um, and the old man stands up, and he, you know, was quite sort of articulate and eloquent in how he spoke. And he, he thanked them for coming, thanked them for their time, said, I know you're volunteers, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Then he got to what he really wanted to say, and he said, he didn't really have a question so much as a comment. He said, uh, you know, I I listened to what you said, and it was interesting, but I cannot accept this. And he said, it stinks of Christianity, and Mm -hmm. I want nothing to do with it. Um, It was a very, he used this very sort of powerful language and powerful phrase, and it dramatically, almost sort of immediately energized all the other patients in the room. They got far more animated than I ever remember them being Otherwise, after he said this, um, and the AA volunteers really struggled to respond. They 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 didn't have much of a response, um, and you know they talked about oh no, it's not Christianity, it's spirituality. Japan is a spiritual place. We have all sorts of spiritual practices and a great history with spirituality. This this can work for anyone, um, but the way in which he framed it, and he's so so immediately linked it to a specific religion um and as one that just was not was intolerable for him, that it wasn't going to work for him. He he couldn't take meaning from the things that they were saying. And and so this was simply, you know, Ed basically saying this had been a waste of his time um and there wasn't really much to be done about it. Uh was really startling. And, and startling in that in terms of illustrating, you know, how Difficult it has, you know, been for some members in Japan to make this work for them, but also all the members that get left behind, that A and Donshikai are your only options if you're struggling with your alcohol consumption in Japan and you'd like to try to reduce it. And if they don't work, there really isn't too much else that you can do. And for a lot of people, they, they simply don't work because of... Yes. who they are and how they see the world and, and, and how they organize their thought and meaning and what's important to them and, and that these the organizational structure of these organizations is, is incompatible with that. Um, so that was far and away kind of the most notable thing that I remember. Um, there were a lot of stories from other meetings that are quite sort of, I think, maybe a bit more shocking in terms of what you know, just things people talking about things that they had done while they were still drinking and you know, often kind of graphic moments of, of despair. Um there was one I remembered though that it 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 struck me for how how deeply embedded alcohol is in alcohol and consumption of alcohol is in Japan. It was at a Donshukai meeting. Um, and it was near New Year's, so the New Year's holiday. Um, and it was from the wife of an alcoholic. And she was speaking um, about these bottles of sake that they kept getting at their house. So this is this practice usually between, you know, companies and, you know, people who work together in Japan. Well, they'll send gifts to each other's house at the end of the year. Um, so her husband kept getting these bottles, big, expensive bottles of sake from, you know, other people at other companies that he worked with, um, partly because he hadn't told anyone he's not an alcoholic. He just worked very hard to avoid, um, you know, being in a situation where he have to drink with them. Um, and then her husband would have to go online and look up how all these different sake tasted so that he could if asked later on by the person who sent it, you know, how was it he could actually speak accurately, you know, oh, it was good, this one was, you know, it was really dry and I like the dry ones or something like that. Um, so the extent to which he would go to kind of maintain the ruse, right, maintain the illusion that, that you know, he's still a normal, back to our, our word from earlier, a, a normal member of society, that he really doesn't feel that he can tell These people who he is, you know, somewhat close to that he's an alcoholic and he doesn't drink anymore out of largely out of fear for how they will receive that news and, you know, how it could potentially be consequential.
1: And for listeners who are particularly interested in this element of a kind of critique of normalcy and ideas of normalcy that we've been talking about, I just want to point them specifically to Chapter 7. We won't have a chance, um, just because of the constraints of our time, to talk in much detail about that. Mm. an entire chapter that looks at collective concepts of normal, futsu, and unusual, fushigi, right? As they shape um, drinking and drunkenness. And one of the interesting things here... Is that drunkenness um, and public intoxication here is normal is normalized, and then um, you you know you kind of contrast this with refusing to drink in sobriety, which is marked as unusual and abnormal and this has really profound consequences um, for individual people on um, for individual men and for alcoholics as they struggle um, to really uh, do you you know what you have mentioned already in this conversation and what you emphasize in the book, which is not just stop drinking, but really produce a new form of self? I mean, this is right. about right coming up with a new self yes. and a new identity, um, and the consequences of that in this frame of normalcy and abnormal are really profound. And you have an entire chapter that really focuses in on that.
0: And also being told that this this new form of self should be one that you're you're happy with and you find fulfilling. And if you don't find that, you're, you're not you're not doing it well enough. So it can be, yes, yeah, kind of doubly impactful on the individual, I think. But.
1: Right, And that struggle um, is actually manifest in at least a couple different sites, right? This sort of struggle with this new production of self um, and the kind of, you know, how do I be functional and normal in this
0: context. Yes.
1: You talk about um, in this middle of the book, specifically in Chapter 5, the way that struggle plays out um, in terms of language as a site of struggle, right? And you talk about the importance of these tropes of self-loathing, of escape, um, of frustration, right? And there's a really beautiful discussion of that in Chapter 5, but also the body as a site of struggle. So listeners who are particularly interested in aspects of embodiment and physicality and physical embodiment of this phenomenon – um, we'll have a lot that they can look to in Chapter Five that really takes us into that as well. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want. I want to make sure that we don't um, end the conversation eventually, right? As we as we move toward the end ish of uh, of our time, yeah. without talking about some of the alternatives. Um, so you know, functionally speaking, AA um, and Dan Chukai are the are the options as you've laid them out, right, for um, right. men struggling with sobriety. Um, and to some extent, women, although, you know, as you as we've talked about, that's kind of uh, a different topic for a different...
0: That's subject, the next book. Right, too. exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a different
1: book. Um, but you do talk about some alternatives to Dhan and A.A. One of them um, is treated in... or both of them are discussed at length in Chapter 6. One of them is something called Naikan. Um, this is a particular practice that has elements of Buddhist practice, elements of meditation... Um, and there's a description of that here. But there's also another aspect of practice that you talk about as a potential alternative or as another site of self-making that's perhaps not um, uh, experienced in terms of the same kinds of constraints as these groups, Danshukai and AA, and that's the use of the Internet. Um, This is really interesting, and I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that. The growing use of the Internet as a recovery tool or alcoholics in Japan.
0: Well, yeah, would, that was something that that really jumped out at me because I heard one interviewee mention it, and then another, and then another um, that a lot of them were asked, instructed by often by their doctors, but sometimes they had already started to do this on their own um, to to keep a blog, right? But and they would often frame it more as keep an online diary of of your your struggles, you know, your how you're feeling, what's going on, what it's like to be, you know, to try to stay sober, all these, you know, different issues that you might be wrestling with, um, and I think in some ways there's there's certainly a history of diary keeping in Japan that's you know certainly much older than yet yeah, you know blogging and the internet or, and things like that, but certainly you know kind of plugging into that a little bit, um, and there are you know quite a few. Websites that are maintained by individual alcoholics, and it's—I um, think back to my own often sort of very pathetic attempts to, you know, maintain a blog or something like that. Then I get—we've <laughs> all been there. I I, 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 <laughs> We've all <been> every there. <laughs> an, an entry, um, you know, this 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 rigorous, absolute process of of keeping it up to date, um, and often very, you know, very intimate. Posts about their struggles and their feelings and and you know or you know sometimes quite mundane, right, just how their day was, what they ate um, you know I walked past a, a bar that I used to go to today, and that was a little troubling or or you know things of that nature um, but really trying to to use the internet as this platform to in a you know maybe semi autonomous place anonymous place to Talk about what's going on in your life, how how your struggles are going, um, and this would come up a lot in meetings too. People would talk about how this was a useful place for them to you know to be able to write, to put things down, um, that it gave them this this other platform or this other place that they found useful. And I really think I'm um, one of the things I often would would ask people in interviews is this something that you know you want to to expand upon, or, or you know, that you could do more with, and you would consistently get this answer: "Oh yes, you know, I, I would certainly like to do that." Um, and that, but I didn't see too much of that. It's something I'd maybe like to continue to 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 look into a bit more, or or go back and revisit a bit. That you know, has this continued to expand in a way or evolve in a way that is is productive to recovery?
1: And this is particularly interesting, right, in the larger context of the book where you're repeatedly bringing us back to the importance of this disjuncture or the relationship between the individual and the collective, or right? the individual and various types of collective. And I think it's one of the really interesting things about um, any kind of blogging and journaling and sort of individual activity on the Internet, right, is that right. it's a way of producing different forms of collective, different kinds of collectivity that might... Yeah, exactly. It's really, right? Like interesting alternatives to the dominant social norms or social structures of a, um, a society. So, I yeah. Think that's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about that um, in light of this larger argument that the book is making.
0: Oh, yeah, most definitely, yes.
1: So as we move toward the last chapter of, of the book, we move toward a really interesting case, right? So throughout the book, right, <laughs> like, you know, about a prince. So throughout the book, you've talked in various ways about the importance of kind of famous or charismatic figures, and this can take different forms. Sometimes it takes the form of a kind of um, figurehead that is held as the founder of one of these groups like right? bob a bill or you know the founder of Danshukai, sometimes it takes the form of an important figure that's a head or a leader of a particular meeting here we have an interesting discussion of uh, an important famous figure who becomes a site of potential optimism um, for the community of alcoholics and alcoholic men in particular in japan um, and you talk about the, the outcome of that optimism. So I'll just hit the ball over to you at this point. <laughs> Can you talk about the case of Prince Tomohito of Mikasa? Like, what's notable about that case? And for you, um, what's important for us to take away from, um, what you'll describe, right? Um, about this case, what happened there?
0: Well, it, it was all coincidence. It had, just All of this started to happen right sort of after I, I got to Tokyo and started doing my field work. Um, but the prince, um, he was always sort of a controversial, somewhat controversial figure in the imperial family. He had this reputation for being outspoken and kind of speaking his mind. Um, but he addressed a... Um, an audience at a, a city welfare office and he, he used very deliberate language, very much taken from AA, and he said, I'm Prince Tomohito of Mikasa and I am alcohol dependent um, and I'm going to enter treatment for this. I'm going to try to get sober and recover. Um, it actually delayed one of my interviews with a doctor because that was then the doctor who had to go off and help him with his treatment for... A couple of months so we had to postpone um, our meeting, but I guess I'm it makes sense I would come in second to a prince, I guess. Yeah, a that's, little bit, yeah. You know, um, but it was this great moment of optimism among AA and Don Chukai members. They really saw this as as you know, this potential moment where um, our struggles will be better acknowledged people will will take a more nuanced view to alcoholism and what it means to be an addict then you know we will start to get um the the attention that we want right we won't just be written off as, as degenerates or things like that but people will actually start to 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 understand our struggle a bit um there were even a couple, two different people who did not know each other, both said this is maybe our Betty Ford moment, right, talking about, you know, how the First Lady really brought addiction, alcoholism into popular conversation in the United States through her own, you know, being honest about her struggles and, and what she was going through. So there was a tremendous sense of, you know, this is it, this is our moment, um, and then nothing really happened, Um, that conversation didn't really get started, and sort of what had been front-page news, you know, the prince, the alcoholic prince and stuff like that um, kind of disappeared and faded away. There was an earthquake in uh, Niigata, uh, which is a city sort of in northern Japan, uh, a couple weeks later, and that became the major news story. And for a lot of the AA and Don Shikai members, this was just confirmation that they really are neglected, forgotten, you know, people don't want to consider what's what their lives are like or what, you know, what their struggles are. Um and a couple of years later the prince he had relapsed and he had started drinking again. He made, you know, another admission and talked again about his struggles with sobriety and, and alcohol and and all of these sorts of things. And it was, you know, very much you know, way at the back of the newspaper, one sort of short article that that very few people paid any attention to. Um, And so a lot of, you had this great moment of optimism, right, as I was starting my work that then really faded and really kind of confirmed for a lot of people that I was working with and both, with both groups that, you know, they really are they don't factor into the the social landscape of contemporary japan in any in really in any kind of way that they really are pushed to the margins and and a lot of people don't really want to to think about what's going on or consider um, yeah some of the nuances of their struggle uh, there was even one, someone as the story started to fade out of the newspapers who said why can't we be more like depression which i initially found to be this really odd statement and then i I looked into it a little bit more and um depression was becoming is becoming something that's more and more recognized more and more accepted in japan you know you talked about how you you know you can walk into any bookstore and there's usually uh you know a stack of books near the front you know the latest titles on dealing with depression overcoming depression you know why can't we meaning alcoholics why can't we have that what do we need to do to to achieve what they've been able to achieve particularly when we had you know what seemed to be like the leader the figure that that we so needed and even then it didn't it didn't work out
1: thank you so much paul now as we come to the end of our interview we also come to the end of the book the book to this point has looked at the struggles of japanese men to find kind of a public alcoholic persona that's accepted as socially appropriate. Their sense of masculinity and of a place in society has been dismantled. And Chapter 8, the the final body chapter of the book, really focuses on the process of, as you put it, trying to repair this sense of masculinity in place within Japan. So perhaps a good um, maybe final question before we move to the conclusion is for you to talk a little bit about what might happen next. And for you, how might anthropology and your project in particular meaningfully contribute to this goal, to this sense of repairing um, the, the sense of masculinity in place within Japan of these alcoholics?
0: Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's something I certainly continue to think about even after the book is out. And um, I think in sort of a roundabout way, one of the things I... I really think needs to be emphasized more is, is that how context matters. And I think that's, that's certainly something that comes to the fore with ethnography and and it's something that I hope maybe this book can help make a little bit more apparent and, and, and recognize in, in other circles that context is, is deeply fundamentally important here. And in a lot of ways, context is really, structuring a lot of the, the struggles and frustrations and, and um, a lot of the issues that the men I talk about in this book are having, that because their 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 own context is not recognized, right, that the importance of drinking for men in Japan and, and it's not addressed somehow by the recovery apparatus that they're given, that it, it doesn't really factor into what's going on, um, they don't often have much recourse otherwise they don't have anywhere else to turn too much you know perhaps turn a bit more to the internet and i think that's you know certainly something i want to continue to explore with this topic but more than anything else i think that needs to both you know in a conversation about alcoholics in japan but just a conversation about addiction generally i think there does need to be a lot more focus on you know, particularly individual context and how does that influence, how does that motivate someone's addiction? How do, what what role is that playing in, in their struggles with whether it's alcohol or you know, other addicting substances? How how does context matter here?
1: So now that we're at the conclusion of our hour, there's of course a bunch of stuff that we didn't talk about, right? There's a ton of material in the book. Um, that we just barely um, scratch the surface of, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners um, that hasn't yet come up in the conversation?
0: I think I mean just sort of trying to to situate this within a conversation a general conversation about addiction and what does it mean to be addicted what it what who gets to make those decisions on on who gets labeled an addict or not? how are those labels influenced by, you know, a wide variety of factors. If we're talking about alcoholism, you know, we're talking then about AA, we're talking about, you know, the influence of Christianity, you know, and a particular sort of vein of Christianity, right? A sort of upper middle class, white American Protestant view of the religion. Um, so how, how do all these things influence, you know, what we take for granted about addiction and, and how have they played a pretty i think a pretty major role in shaping our are very taken for granted assumptions about an alcoholic and addict and and i think you know that's always sort of what i see the role of anthropology to be to to insert more more kind of messiness and confusion into conversations to 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 make things a bit problematic but make them problematic in a good productive way and i think that that really needs to happen a bit more with anything that considers alcoholism, addiction, you know, all all the other the, the very varied aspects of this issue.
1: And now that the book is out, and congratulations on it. Thank the book, you. What's next for you? What's currently inspiring you?
0: Um, I, I sort of promised myself I would try to do something a bit happier for the next <laughs> project. Um, that while this was, you know, a tremendous, you know, opportunity. And I really loved all the people I worked with. It, It is also kind of, it can weigh on you sometimes a bit. So um, uh, I'm looking at um, Japanese Brazilian baseball players is the next thing I would like to do. And players who have played baseball in Brazil and have now returned back to Japan as baseball players, and but also associate a lot more with their, their move back, you know, returning to some kind of ancestral homeland, playing a sport that isn't particularly popular in Brazil, but you know is certainly one of the major sports in Japan. And, and I would like to incorporate ideas about the body and athleticism and, and what gets attributed to these different bodies as they move throughout the world. And also do something that's a bit more, uh, I don't want to say lighthearted, but a, a bit happier perhaps. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, best of luck with that project. Thank you very much. Let me know when when you you write that, because we'll talk about that too. That sounds awesome also. And thanks so much for making the time, Paul. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Well, Thank you very much. It's been wonderful, yes.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.